I always get alarmed when they start going before I've even started. Well, good morning to you. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, I want to thank Adam for the opportunity to uh, uh, bring a sermon this morning and a series of sermons that we're doing on some of the fundamentals of the faith. How many of you were here last week? Okay, uh, Adam preached on the triune God, uh, and that was a wonderful sermon. Uh, that's a very, very difficult topic uh, to preach on, number one, because as Adam said, there's nowhere in the Bible where you're going to find the word Trinity. Uh, but if you look at the amalgamation of all of Scripture and you bring it all together, that's what the Bible teaches. So uh, that's why we believe in the triune nature of God. Uh, that's why we worship God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there really is no good example that you can come up with that uh, tries to relate. Because we have in the Bible, uh, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we have three who's and one what. And that's difficult for a human being to comprehend. But let me tell you, probably one of the best examples I've ever heard was from a fellow by the name of Nathan Parler, who's a theologian out of North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, Illinois. And he says the triune God is like this. And his example was of verbal speech. And I thought he hit the nail on the head. Uh, when you verbalize speech, you have to have three things that occur. You have to have an idea, you have to say it, and you have to have the spirit with which it is said. And all those th three things have to occur simultaneously. All three have to occur at the same time. A lot of examples of the triune nature of God, like water, which is in a solid state, uh, a liquid state, and a gaseous state, those are all true, but they're not all three the same at the same time. But in uh, Dr. Pollard's example, all three are going on. Uh, if I were to, uh, my wife Bev's here today, if I were to grab her and say, uh, Bev, eh, I love you. She probably wouldn't believe me because I, I didn't say it with much passion or much intent. Uh, but if I said it in a very passionate and loving way, which I always do, uh, she would believe me. So there is the idea that I love her. There's the vocalization of that. And then there is the spirit with which I'm giving that expression. So just kind of remember that. I thought that was a very cool way of expressing the triune nature of God. Now, we're going to get down to my portion today, and we're going to look at Holy Scripture. Uh, this, is, uh, it's, this is not an easy topic either. Uh, we could do 20 sermons on this. Uh, I'm not noted for doing anything in a very short period of time, uh, but I'm going to try to get this accomplished here in the next half hour, uh, 35, maybe 40 minutes. Uh, we're looking at what are called the fundamentals of the faith, and we're looking at five of them. Uh, Adam preached on the triune God. I'm doing Holy Scripture today, and we're going to be dealing with the divine inspiration of the Bible, uh, revelation in its different forms, inerrancy and infallibility. Uh, next one we're going to do is on the substitutionary atonement of Christ, uh, then the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and lastly we're going to do the virgin birth of Christ. These fundamentals uh, came out of a series of 90 essays that were put together uh, between 1905 and 1915. And if this was funded by two brothers, Lyman and Milton Stewart, 
uh, who were born before the Civil War. Actually, Lyman Stewart uh, served in the 16th Pennsylvania Regiment uh, as an infantryman three years during the Civil War. Uh, his father had been a successful oil person in Pennsylvania. Uh, Lyman and his brother Milton tried it in Pennsylvania and failed uh, on numerous occasions. So uh, in 1905, they moved out to Southern California and wouldn't you know it, they struck oil. So uh, they started a company called Unical, uh, Union Oil of California, which became one of the uh, most profitable oil companies in the United States and they became fantastically wealthy. And these two brothers were Christian philanthropists. Uh, they were evangelicals and they put together a series of essays. Um, this was done under the supervision of Dr. Reuben, Reuben Archer Torrey, R.A. Torrey, and A.C. Dixon, uh, as a series of essays to combat what they saw as theological liberalism that was coming and invading most of the denominations at the time. You have to remember that around the turn of the century, uh, the theory of evolution was taking hold uh, German higher criticism of the Bible was, was in vogue. Uh, back at that time, whatever was in vogue in Europe theologically, it took about 20 to 25 years to cross the Atlantic and come into this country. Uh, today it takes five minutes because we have computers, there's all sorts of things, so whatever popular there can be popular here tomorrow. But then it took about 20 years, and so uh, these brothers to combat this funded this on their own dime, and they sent out 250,000 sets of these essays, and they put it in 12 volumes, and they sent it to every Christian pastor, Protestant, Catholic, every missionary, Sunday school teacher, YMCA, YWCA worker, and they sent it free of charge, 250,000 of these. And this became known as the Fundamentals of the Christian Faith. And it got shortened over the years to just what was called the Fundamentals. And uh, various publishing houses, particularly Baker Book Houses, republished this. I have a four-volume set that I bought 40, 35 years ago uh, that I've read through, and it's very, very interesting. Uh, these articles uh, deal with all sorts of theological issues that were going on. And one of them we're going to talk about today is the doctrine of the inspiration of the Bible. Does everybody have a Bible with them today? Ah, hold it up. Let me see it. We got one? I got a Bible here. I got a King James Version of the Bible. Does anybody ever go to Half Price Bookstore? I love Half Price Books. Uh, I bought this one. This is a, a brand new King James Version that I bought on November the 3rd, 2016. I paid $8 for it. And it was a brand new Bible and it still had the wrapping around it. And it was published in 1947. So this Bible is over 70, what is it, 70 years old now? Never been used uh, until I've got it now, and I've been using it now for about six months. Uh, I usually use the American Standard, New American Standard, or the English Standard Version. I like those translations better. Uh, but as a kid, I, how many of you grew up the King James Version? How you did? That's what I did. I, I memorized mostly uh, out of the King James Version. And so it's my version of choice for memorizing. I just, I love the cadence of it, and I love how it sounds. And I just think it's... Um, just, it's a good translation done with uh, manuscripts that uh, uh, were not plentiful at the time, but all in all, it's a, it's a good translation. So, uh, we're going to look today at the doctrine of the inspiration of the Bible. 
Uh, and so we're going to define what does it mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? Let's just, you can talk if you want, but we'll just make this a Sunday school class. Does anybody know? What does inspiration mean? If somebody were to ask you, you're telling me the Bible is inspired, what do you mean when you say that? You'd say it's God's word? Okay. Okay. All right. God led the authors, 40 some human authors, over a period of 1,500 years. Um, does God dictate the words to them and they're kind of like secretaries writing it down? That's one way to look at inspiration. Uh, the one that, that is that uh, it's truly a product of God. It is the Word of God, but yet it is truly the Word of man. It's 100% God's Word. And it's 100% man's word. And you say, well, how can that be? That seems like a paradox. How can something be totally of God and totally man? Well, isn't that who Jesus is? Isn't Jesus totally God, but yet 100% human? It's not a 50-50 split. Jesus is truly divine. He is the God-man. He is God incarnate in human flesh, but yet he is born of a woman. He is truly man. And so what we're going to look at is before we look at inspiration, and I'm not going to define it here in a minute, uh, but we're going to look at the doctrine of revelation. Not the book of Revelation, but revelation in that how God reveals himself to humanity. And the first one is, if you have a Bible... Uh, turn to uh, the psalm, Psalm 19. And we're going to take a look at something here. Most of you are familiar with this. We're going to look at what is called general revelation. And general revelation is this. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, or the expanse, showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? General revelation is the revealing of God to humanity that his creation is all of his. He not only creates the earth, but he creates the moon, the stars, the universe. He's saying, all you have to do is look up and you'll see that something or someone had to create this not only did they have to create it, they had to be better than the creation that they created. Something that's lesser cannot do something that's greater. So whoever created this has to be greater than what the creation is. And so most people understand that when you look up in the sky, if you have any spiritual sensitivity at all, 
and anthropology and sociology has proven this time and time again that tribes from all over the earth have worshiped the sun, they've worshiped the moon, they've worshiped the stars, they have believed in some deity that has created something that is greater than they are. How many of you are gonna be around here for the eclipse coming up? Has anybody ever seen one? They're exciting, they really are. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, get yourself some of those glasses and watch it. Uh, when I was a kid, I wasn't, well, I wasn't a kid, I was 20, 22, 23 years old. Uh, I used to, I love astronomy. I have for years, I still do. Uh, in 1974, I built a telescope. Uh, I built a 10-inch Newtonian reflector telescope, and I still have it. Uh, I ground the mirror down, I bought a 12-inch sewer pipe. Uh, I built a stand, I've got a motor drive on it, I got barbell weights as counterweights, and it, it's pretty cool. It's about six feet long. Uh, weighs about three to four hundred pounds. I don't get it out too often because I just don't want to lug three to four hundred pounds around. Uh, but I used to photograph uh, lunar eclipses through it. I did a solar eclipse once. Uh, I photographed Jupiter, Saturn, uh, different. Uh, uh, it makes you look like you're standing on the moon. And when I started doing that, it really started impressing upon me. Boy, who made this stuff? Did all of this just come out of nothing? I took science classes that said basically everything came from nothing. That doesn't seem to make sense. So whatever is out there, something greater than that had to create it. And so became my search for who made all this stuff? Am I just a random pack of molecules that are crammed together in this physical body and living a life that will someday return to dust and that's it. And so that became my spiritual journey. Uh, and uh, I, I think that uh, just looking up, if you have a spiritual sensitivity at all, God will reveal himself. Now the thing about general revelation is that it doesn't save you. The only thing it stands to do is condemn you. Because once you realize there is a creator who has made something greater than you, your responsibility is to search for that creator. God says, if you seek me, you'll what? You'll find me. And so, men don't seek after God. So the general revelation only works for those who believe. Once you believe, you understand very quickly, this is a revelation of God in nature. But you can't stand before God and say, I never knew that you existed. So it seeks only to condemn you. How do I know that? Turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. This is Paul writing to the church at Rome. And this is what happens when God judges not only individuals, but nations. And this is, as I read through this, I want you to pay very, very close attention to the words. 
because it'll become very apparent where we're at as a society today. Uh, beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifested in them. If you got a pen, underline this. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them over to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men working with that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even they, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind." The word reprobate there is different translations. It comes from the Greek word repobatos. And it means something that has been tested and found to have no value at all. How many of you have ever worked quality control on an on a assembly line? Anybody? I did when, when I was younger. I worked uh, for the Pepsi-Cola Bottling Company. And my job was to look at pop-top cans. <laughs> so stupid eight, nine, ten hours a day, as they came down the assembly line, we had to look at these cans they put on, these little pop-tops that came on the cans. And if you found one that was bad, you threw it in the junk pile. It was going to be melted down and used again because it, there was no value to it. It, it. You couldn't salvage it. It was no good. The same idea is here in the word reprobatos. It's something that has been tested and found to have no value. So it's to be thrown away and discarded. So... We keep that in mind as we go on. God gave them over to our private mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedience to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them as well. Boy, that's an indictment, isn't it? When you see this occurring, whether in an individual or in a society, you can tell that the judgment of God has come. Do we see any of that reflection in our society today? 
Yeah, we do. Sometimes you'll hear preachers say, well, if we don't change, God's going to judge us. Maybe he already has. And you're seeing the fallout of this judgment. God's judgment sometimes doesn't occur all at once. It can. But sometimes it can take years, decades, even a century to come to fruition. And in this case, you see that people who deny the general revelation of God will create gods out of the creation, birds, creeping things, four-footed animals, and hold down and suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why? Because their evil hearts are darkened. They've thrown away the general revelation of God in favor of their own creation. So general revelation, that's one thing we want to look at. Uh, that's the physical universe, the cosmos, the things that God has created. The second thing that we want to look at is human consciousness. Everybody is born with a willer. Now, I just made the term up. I don't find it in the Bible. But everybody has a will. A will to do right and a will to do wrong. Uh, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden... God gives them just a very simple test. And what's the test? It's very simple. He says, you got all these trees, everything, you can have it all. Everything is yours. Just one thing. It's, how many of you ever seen the TV show Columbo? You see? Columbo usually walks away and then he turns around and says, I, I just one more thing. It's like God's walking away and he turns around and says, just one more thing. You can have everything, just don't eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else you can have. You can have it all. What happens? Well, what we see is that Satan is there. They seem to be fairly familiar with him. They don't seem to be too frightened uh, that the serpent, now I've got my own take on this, and I'll share it with you. You may agree with me or not. Uh, my concern is I've never heard this from anybody else, so I'm thinking I'm probably wrong because if I come up with it and nobody else has, it's probably not right. So take it for what it's worth. If you look at, turn there real quick. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll see something. Now let's make it chapter 3. We'll talk to it there. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now it doesn't say he's a beast of the field. It just says he's more crafty or more subtle. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of every tree of the tree of the garden, but of the, uh, the fruit of the, the tree that's in the midst of the garden, uh, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened, and ye shall be like gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat, 
And the, both of eyes, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And God called unto them and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard their voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? In Hebrew, it's very emphatic. It's who made you to know? Who made you to know this? Because that's not something that you should know. And so we see the fall. You look at the cursing here that goes on. Uh, we go down uh, to verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, I take the serpent to mean the name for Satan. I take that because in several instances in the Bible, Satan is called that old serpent or serpent. And so I think this is a proper name for Satan here. And I think, this is just my understanding, I think you see the fall of the man, the woman, and Satan all occurring right here. Now, as I said, most people will put the fall of Satan before the garden experience. But God had said just one chapter before, in chapter 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. If Satan had already fallen, I don't know how things could have been very good. So I think this is the fall, not only of the man and the woman, but Satan as well, because in the five eye wills of Satan, what occurs here in Genesis chapter 3 is the exact same thing that Isaiah says will happen. That he wants to be greater than God. He wants to bring his throne above the stars of God. In other words, he wants to be God. And this is what occurs right here. So uh, take that for what it's worth. I won't charge you any extra for that. And uh, you can pass that on as freely as you, you like. So uh, getting back to human conscious though, we see that Adam and Eve here are morally neutral. They haven't had to make any moral decision the first moral decision they have to make, what happens? They make a bad decision and it plunges them and plunges you and I into sin. And we're left with original sin because of what our parents did back here in the garden. But that does not wipe out our conscience. It does not erase our conscience. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And one of those is the communicable attributes of God in that God knows the difference between right and wrong. We know the difference between right and wrong. Now, sometimes we have trouble telling the difference between both of those things, but we do have that capability. But if you look at a human being, how many lies does it take to make you a liar? Which is harder, the first lie or the hundredth lie? It's the first one. It's the first one. And so they built themselves a character. 
and the character fell off on the wrong side of the fence. And so human consciousness is what tells us that innate ability of what's right and what is wrong. We don't have to know God in a personal sense to know the difference between right and wrong. How many of you have met atheists that are really better acting people than a lot of Christians? Have you? I have. And that's a shame, but we all have. So our willers sometimes are bent in that wrong direction, but that does not give us license because we are sinners to go out and to continue sinning. So human consciousness. The third thing about general revelation is divine providence, is that God takes care of his universe, doesn't he? How many of you think the sun is gonna come up tomorrow? I think it is, why? Because it's come up every day from time immemorial. Uh, how many of you think it's gonna to rain tomorrow? <laughs> it's doing it all the time. Of apocalyptic proportions. Last week, we were out without power for about two days, and ours is always the last house on the block for the power to come back on. We live in a little area of Triangle of Prairie Village where we are the last people to get our lights turned on. It's so infuriating, the guy that right across the street from us, his lights will come on, and then it's three days later, ours will. I, infuriates me. Just the way it is. So, uh, what, was, what was I saying? <laughs> it's terrible getting old here. <laughs> God takes care of his own. God causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. He brings the sun up in the morning, goes down in the evening, and I know meteorologically that's not correct, but sun goes up, comes down. Uh, Takes the earth 365 days to go around the sun. Every 28 days, the moon goes from a new phase to a full phase. So it's like clockwork. It happens because of God's divine providence. He takes care of his own. He takes care of his creation. So those are the three aspects of a general revelation. Uh, in a special revelation, the Bible itself is a book about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is the preparation for Christ. Uh, the prophets speak of his coming. Uh, the New Testament is the revelation uh, of the incarnation of Christ. Uh, the Acts and the Epistles are about uh, the works of Jesus Christ and how he intercedes for us on behalf uh, of the Father for those who believe. And the book of the Revelation is the consummation of Jesus Christ. So the Bible itself is a book about Jesus Christ. It is no doubt the greatest book in the world. Uh, to this date, the Bible is still the number one selling book in the world. Uh, up until a few years ago, the King James Version of the Bible was the best selling book. Now it's the New International Version. And the King James Version is number two still. But I thank God for a lot of trans new translations. It gets people into the book reading the Bible. Uh, I think I have every translation that's been done in the last 200 years. Uh, my wife hates it. I know it takes up so much space, but uh, I just collect Bibles. Uh, I like to look at different translations and 
how certain things were translated and, and how they put it in a different perspective. Uh, and it's wonderful that God has given us the ability to take those manuscripts from Hebrew and Aramaic and Koine Greek and to translate it into not only our language, but uh, hundreds of languages around the world today. And so, uh, special revelation is in Jesus Christ. That revelation is only good really for those who were here at the time Jesus walked this earth for some 33 years. Uh, Jesus is not on earth today. So we don't have that revelation, but what we do have in God's word is the written account of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when we mean inspiration, and I'm going to define it here, uh, it is the divine means by which God, through the agency of some 40 human authors, preserved his word in written form in the original autographer or in the original manuscripts, using both person and personality to convey his truth without any admixture of error or untruth. That's a long definition. What it means is that I believe the Bible to be inerrant and infallible. I don't believe there are any errors. Now, I know there are people who will tell you the Bible's full of errors. No, it's not. You know, there are a lot of things in the Bible that I don't understand. I've studied it for over 40 years. I am nothing more than a beginning student at doing this. We'll be doing this for all of eternity. Uh, some of you are way beyond me in, in studying the Bible and knowing what it means. And I cannot comprehend everything that the Bible has to say about itself. But I can apprehend those truths and apply them to my own life. I don't comprehend the Trinity. I don't. I don't understand how God can be truly human and truly God. I don't understand how the Bible can be 100% God's word, but yet 100% the word of man. I can't comprehend that fully, but I can apprehend it. And I can live by those truths. And there is a presupposition on my part. A presupposition is something that a person believes without fully having to understand what it means. Now that sounds like circular reasoning, and it is. If God exists, and he is a good, loving creator who creates not only heaven and earth, but you and I, uh, that which is seen, that which is unseen, if there's a God who creates all of that, it stands to reason to me he would want to communicate with us. Don't you? Don't you think? I do. I think that's, I think that's a pretty reasonable presupposition. And if he would want to communicate with us, uh, since we're all not living at the same time, but we live in different epochs, times, and eras, he would put it down in a book. And that he would divinely preserve that book so that as it passed from generation to generation to generation, the book would remain the same and not change. And that's called the doctrine of divine preservation, that God has preserved his word. Now the problem today is we don't have any of the original manuscripts. None of them exist, whether they be Hebrew, the Aramaic that's used in Daniel and Ezra, or 
the Koine Greek that is used in the New Testament. Uh, when the King James Version was done uh, from 1604 to 1611, uh, a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Desiderius Erasmus, he was a Dutch humanist, and by humanist, I, I, I'm not talking about humanists that we would see today. Uh, that term is used in a more liberal sense. A humanist then was somebody who uh, studied languages and the arts, uh, more of a Renaissance person, somebody who was dedicated to the humanities, uh, who wanted to really know languages. And so Erasmus put together uh, six or seven of the best manuscripts that he could find, and that was used as the basis. It was called the Textus Receptus, and that was used as the basis uh, for the New Testament of the King James Version. The Masoretic text was used uh, in the Old Testament, but the King James used the Textus Receptus. And since then, over the last several hundred years, there's been almost 6,000 manuscripts discovered that bear witness to the Greek New Testament. Now some of these are in small papyri, some of them are in uh, cuneiform style, some are in uh, uh, on parchments. Uh, we've got several complete manuscripts, uh, Codex Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, uh, two, the two would be, and I have seen both of them in the uh, British Museum. Uh, they're very interesting to look at and I've got copies of them. Uh, they are complete manuscripts of the New Testament that date back to uh, the early part of the uh, third century. And so those witnesses go way back. So we've got different text types. Uh, there are some people who will only use the King James Version, and that's fine. Uh, uh, I love it, I've used it for years, still continue to use it. But I thank God that uh, we've got all of these witnesses that get us closer and closer and closer back to virtually what the original autographa or the original manuscripts say. So what you hold in your hand, you can be very, very confident that it is the word of the living God. Uh, some translations are better than others. Uh, I like the New American Standard the best, and then I like the English Standard Version. Uh, some people prefer the easier reading of the NIV. Uh, some are not so good. I don't like the Good News Bible. I think it's bad news. It's a bad translation. And I hate those little stick drawings that they have in it. Uh, but that's just me. Uh, so there are good translations and there are bad translations. Use them and compare them. Uh, there's a plethora of things that you can use today. Uh, there's a lot of translations that are on the internet now. Uh, the World English Bible, the New English Translation, done out of Dallas Seminary, is a very good uh, translation. But all of those things, there are a number of study tools. And when the Bible says, uh, when Paul tells Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, that's what it means. It means to study to show yourself approved unto God. If you're looking to grow spiritually by just coming to church on Sunday morning, you might as well stay in bed, folks. It's not going to happen. Worship with reverend sheets. It's not going to get you very far. It's going to have to be you taking the time to sit down because the tools are available. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know English, or, or hopefully you'll know English. You don't have to know Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic in order to advance very far in biblical studies. 
So uh, let's continue on. Uh, as we, we look at the Bible being the written word of God, the Bible vies today with a lot of other books that claim to be the word of God. Uh, the Quran. How many have ever read the Quran? You ought to get it and read it. It's a fascinating book. It's not the word of God. But it's fascinating how it plagiarizes a lot of what's in the Bible and takes it and puts it in a setting that's 600 years past the time of Christ. Uh, allegedly, it was done by the prophet Muhammad who claimed that the angel Gabriel came to him in a cave and over a period of 30-some years uh, gave him the words of the Quran. Uh, it was put together by his close associates after his death and there were several redactions of it. Uh, but the Quran, as you see it today, uh, is virtually unchanged from the time of Muhammad. And it says a lot about Christianity. Uh, it says a lot about Christian doctrine. Believe it or not, more Muslims believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ than do Christians. Did you know that? That's a very distinct doctrine that's taught in the Quran. Now, uh, it's not the word of God. There's other people who have come along. Joseph Smith would be a classic example. If you compare the life of Joseph Smith and you compare the life of Muhammad, you see some very eerie parallels there. Uh, he claims that the angel Gabriel comes to him and tells him to translate uh, from these golden plates that only he's the one who's going to be able to see. And so uh, Joseph Smith produces his own version of the Bible. Uh, the, another book, Doctrines and Covenants in the Group of the Pearl of Great Price, uh, which formed the, the triune books uh, that are uh, so important within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, you got the Hindu Bhagavad Gita and the uh, Hindu Vedic literatures claim to be uh, from God. Uh, you've got the Buddhist Pali Canon that, that claims to be uh, the work of divine. But you know what? Let's take a look. Turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. We'll be wrapping this up here. Second Timothy 3.16. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, and the term man there is the Greek word adelphoi, and it means the person of God, uh, the men and women of God, the brothers and sisters. Uh, we can put the person of God may be perfect, Truly furnished unto all good works. So when it says all scripture, it's talking about the Old Testament here because the New Testament has not been completed yet. So it's talking about the Old Testament. And Paul tells Timothy that it is given by inspiration of God. And the word there, inspiration, is the Greek word theos noustas. Theos being the Greek word for God. Noustas, uh, we get the word pneumatic or pneuma, uh, it is the Greek word, the koine word, that means 
a breath, uh, a wind, uh, the spirit, uh, the utterance. So all scripture is given and it is God-breathed. And some translations have that, and I like that translation. All scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable. So how is that done? How does God inspire scripture? Well, let's take a look here. Let's take a look at 2 Peter 1. This is gonna be the last text we look at. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21. It says this, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the word moved there is like, uh, an example would be, have you ever seen a, a ship on the water as it's moved by the waves? That's the connotation here, that when holy men of God, when the pen in their hand touched the parchment they were writing on, they were not only writing what they wanted, but they were writing exactly what God wanted them to write as well. If you study the Greek language for any amount of time, you will, you will see very quickly that Paul writes in a certain style, Luke writes in a certain style, James writes in a certain style. You can pick out individual personalities. Uh, John writes in a certain style. So these personalities are not obliterated, but they are used by God and they are writing in their time, in their culture, in their context. As limited as that may be, whatever they wrote is exactly what God wanted them to write without obliterating the person or the personality. So when we say that the Bible is divinely inspired, we mean that everything here from cover to cover is the word of the living God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction and for correction in righteousness. You wanna grow spiritually? You can't do it without reading the word of God. And I think that's one of the big things that's lacking today. You ask people, or if somebody comes up and asks you, do you believe the Bible to be the word of God? In the last Gallup poll in 2011, 49% of the American public said, yes, I believe the Bible to be the word of God, 49%. Now, we're six years down the line. I don't know how far that has, that has moved, whether it's increased or decreased. I'm imagining it's decreased. But still a large percentage of Americans still believe that the Bible to be the word of God. And I thank God for that. Uh, but as we go along, as secularism increases, as scientific knowledge increases, uh, there should not be any separation between science and, and the sacred scriptures. All truth is God's truth whether it be in science, mathematics, philosophy, or theology. All truth is God's truth. And if you wanna know truth, it's in the word of God that is divinely inspired, that is given to you so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Pray with me. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for our time together today. Uh, we've barely even made a dent on a subject that is so deep, so fascinating, uh, so misunderstood that as students of your word, we would ask as we go forth from here that we would boldly proclaim your word, that we would be that light in that city that's set upon a hill and that when we are asked why we have faith, that we would be able to give answers readily and to be able to defend what we believe and why we believe it. Lord, help us to believe and help our unbelief that we might be able to prove to others that Christ not only lives, but lives in us and we are his ambassadors. Thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, bless this dedicated group of your followers. Give us the unction to go out and tell others about Jesus because we've asked these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you all this morning.